0: I expect that by now you probably noticed the title of today's message. How will we win the next generation to Christ? Every area of Christianity has, by the way, been concerned about winning the next generation to Christ. We realize that society hangs on the future of our children. Society rises and falls upon their actions, upon their faith... What is our government going to look like in the next generation? Will it continue to decay? How about our family structure? Will that continue continue to erode, or will the next generation fight for a biblical concept of marriage? Probably more important than any of these is what's the church going to look like? Will people still be coming to church? Will Christians send out missionaries? Will the buildings be full? Will the buildings get paid for? What's, what's going to happen in the next generation? There's a lot hanging in the balance. And these statistics are alarming, and I'll share with you today. There are two separate polls that I have, one done by Barna Research Group and another by USA Today, and, and both found that approximately 75% of our youth who come to church will defect by the time they leave home at 18 years old. Even more startling, that that data from another Barna study again, which is a very reputable uh, research group, uh, it shows that less than one half of 1% of Christians between the ages of 18 and 23 has a biblical worldview. This would involve questions like, is the Bible accurate? Is Christ the sinless son of God? And... Uh, does God reign? Does he have control over the universe? These are the type of questions that these, these researchers ask. Young people just don't seem to get it. We hear it over and over again uh, from well-intended youth mini- uh, missionaries, uh, and they attempt to fundraise for their latest promotional technique, and we hear we need to reach these teenagers. We've got to double down on youth ministry That's what we hear. Then we often hear them quote this staggering statistic again from Barna, which indicates if we don't reach them before they leave home at 18, there's only a 6% chance they will ever become Christian. Only a 6% chance they will ever become Christian if they leave home at 18. Remember that statistic. Very important statistic. And I'm going to bring that number back at the end of the message. Um, So Put that away. Place that in the back of your minds. One other thing, before I continue this message, I want to make it very clear. Um, we talk about how the, in the Bible, how we're going to win the next generation to Christ. Let me assure you during this entire message that effective youth ministry is very important to Port St. Lucie Bible Church. And it will remain very important to Port St. Lucie Bible Church. But the fact that I believe you'll be convinced of today from Scripture is that we're not going to win the next generation of Christ solely through youth ministry. Let me take you first through a brief history of uh, youth ministry. I got a lot of this information from uh, the Gospel Coalition. You might be familiar. Tim, uh, Tim Keller is, uh, is a leader in that, a very reputable uh, organization, and this is a, a brief history that was put out by their, their group. A number you probably already know that 75 years ago, a few longer than 75 years ago, there was no youth ministry the way that we see it today. It, it didn't exist. What you had before that were children would come with their parents and sit in the pews and hear the gospel preached. And they, it was a, a situation where you'd sit with your grandma and you'd have the Bible open together. And you would hear the scripture, you would read the scripture together. And then, in about the 1940s, Jim Rayburn, if you've heard of him, began a parachurch ministry that was called Young Life. Uh, That ministry placed caring Christian adults in authentic, genuine relationships with adolescent teens. At the same time, a new group that was called Youth for Christ, still in existence today, began to hold large rallies big stadium rallies in Canada and England and in the United States. Then as they transitioned to the 50s and the 60s, Youth for Christ organized what we all know probably uh, or have heard of is Bible clubs. The Bible clubs were uh, facilitating a relational evangelism to unchurched children. Then finally we come into the 1970s and churches began to hire specialized ministers does anybody remember what they became called? Youth pastors. Yes, they began to have youth pastors. And these youth pastors immediately began implementing an, an attractional model to evangelism. They are trying to draw large crowds, and they prov- would provide food and music and movies. Uh, one youth pastor, as noted in the article uh, by this author, even began to swallow live goldfish if the children would bring a quota of friends, to the meeting. This is how it began. Next we have the 1980s. With that arrived MTV and the entertainment generation began. Uh, Youth ministry became more entertainment-driven than ever before with video production, uh, elaborate sound and lighting techniques. Pizza and burgers weren't enough anymore. Then finally, with the arrival of Nickelodeon and uh, children's game shows, the youth pastor's message had to be shortened and condensed for an entertainment-saturated youth culture. In the words of this author, his name's Dave Wright, the youth began to realize that Christianity was no different from the world around them. And then concerning church pastors, he says, quote, we realized we were faced with a generation whose faith was unsustainable. Unquote. So here are some results as compiled. Uh, These are his his uh, results. If anybody wants this afterwards, um, it'll be sitting up here. You're welcome to have it, or I could get you copies. This pretty much summarizes all of his points. But here are the results of doubling down in these ways, according to the article. First, he says we moved from the parachurch. We moved the parachurch model of ministry into the church, and consequently, we segregated the youth from the rest of the congregation. No longer were the children sitting with grandma and grandpa and mom and dad, but they were relegated to the youth room during functions. Second, this attractional model became entertainment-driven ministry. Each week had to be a better show or people wouldn't come. The churches obscured the gospel by trying to make Jesus look cool. Third, he says, we attempted to make converts of many, quote-unquote converts of many, But disciples of few. We concluded that strong Bible teaching and helping students embrace a robust theology that would withstand the test of time, that was boring. So the faith we were indoctrinating into children then became shallow. Finally, fourth, he says, and I'll quote this entire entire paragraph, we created a consumer mentality amongst a generation that did not expect to be challenged. The frightening truth is that youth ministry books and training events were teaching us to do the exact methods that had failed us the major shapers of youth ministry nationally were teaching us that the latest games or were teaching us the latest games and selling us big events with the assumption that we would work some content in there somewhere in the midst of all of this church leaders and parents came to expect that successful youth ministry is primarily about having fun and attracting large crowds Here's the summary of Mr. Dave Wright and the Gospel Coalition. He says, the task before us is enormous. We need to change the way we pass the faith to the next generation. Believing in the sufficiency of Scripture, we must turn to the Bible to teach us how to do ministry. To that I say amen. Another thing that I can assure you is that every responsible dean of Christian education already knows this. You go to the seminaries across the country in the Bible colleges that teach solid biblical doctrine. You can go to the Southern Seminary in Louisville with Al Mohler or the Master's College and Seminary out with John MacArthur or you can go to Dallas Seminary and many of the Bible colleges around and they know this. this these are facts. This, what we have been doing has not been working. And Gerald and I have talked about this a lot and we both agree that in order to win the next generation we must turn to the Bible to teach us how to do ministry. What we actually need to do to win children to Christ is going to take a lot of courage. It's going to take the type of courage that we learned about two weeks ago with Shamgar, if we're going to go into our community and reach them. And then last week, fortunately, we found out as we have this courage that God is going to very generously reward us for stepping out on faith. So let's return to Scripture now. You can go back to Acts chapter 16 or turn back there and see if we can identify some basic principles about reaching youth. Then I'll wrap up by sharing some statistics about youth which will astound you. Back in our text in Acts chapter 16, let's see how the youth were reached in this particular situation. The father in this household we know of as the Philippian jailer. He asked how he personally could be saved. That was his question. The Apostle Paul told him what in Silas? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. In this single verse, the Apostle Paul more than suggests that the actions and faith of the father are going to permeate the household. So, what is the result? In verse 32, we find that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And the jailer took them that very hour of the night to wash their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And the jailer brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. The faith and actions of the father translate into a spiritual blessing on the whole household. As the father goes, so goes the home. Is this an anomaly? Does scripture propose this to be a fluke chance occurrence? Well, let's look six chapters earlier in Acts chapter 10. We find a centurion named Cornelius. Cornelius. Cornelius, it tells us, was a devout man who feared the God of Israel. He had not heard the gospel yet about Jesus Christ, but he was praying to the God of Israel, Yahweh. And he was giving alms. He was, we're told, the the leader, the spiritual role model of his family. In verse 22, by order of Cornelius, some of Cornelius' servants came to the apostle Peter. Because an angel had told Cornelius to send for the apostle Peter. And these servants said, Cornelius a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you Peter, to come to his house and to hear a message from you. And next we're told that Cornelius used his leadership and his influence to gather his family and friends together. Ultimately, He gathers people together to hear the gospel. And in verse 24 of that same chapter, it says, On the following day, Peter entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So here we find again the head of the household plays a very significant role in the rest of the family coming together to hear about Christ and to believe the gospel. The story continues as, por- as Peter proclaims the gospel message to Cornelius and his entire family and the friends. And ultimately, in verse 4, it says, The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. In the next chapter, chapter 11, verse 14, scripture affirms this angel, who initially approached Cornelius, by the way, told him that the gospel message was for him and his household. The angel went. To the head of the household. Just as Paul and Silas did. And the angel tells Cornelius to prepare his family. Now is that just circumstantial? Or in scripture, do God's evangelists and God's apostles and God's prophets and even his divine angels, or divinely sent angels, excuse me, do they always go to adults to reach the household? How about in Acts 18, verse 8, when the Apostle Paul witnessed to Crispus, now he was a leader in the synagogue, and it says that as a result of that, Crispus believed with his entire household. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when Paul indicated that he baptized Stephanus and his whole household believed, or after they believed. So do we have a coincidence no. No, this approach to evangelism is not coincidence. Utilizing the God-ordained head of the institution of the home uh, is an unmistakable pattern in Scripture. You find it everywhere. Parents are always the spiritual influence in the family. God designed the institution of family to work that way, to function in that way. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 19, Old Testament, it says, You shall teach God's statutes to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Then we find in Psalm, this is Psalm 78, verse 4, concerning God's wondrous works that He has done, the psalm tells the parents... Do not conceal them from your children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. You can't read Proverbs or really any portion of it, uh, any portion of the Bible, and come to any other conclusion than the fact that parents influence and teach the children. Parents are to influence and teach the children. And God makes these these parents' promises, the believing uh, believing parents' promises. In Scripture, he says, uh, uh, he tells them that God is going to give special provision and protection to the family, to those who are discipled by their parents. This concept is woven throughout wisdom literature uh, and in the Bible. Proverbs 22, uh, 6, it says, Train up a a child in the way he shall go. He will not depart from it when he is older. God promises these types of things repeatedly in Scripture. Everywhere you look, children are influenced by their parents. In Proverbs, children are warned repeatedly, do not forsake the instruction of your parents, of your fathers, of your mothers. God has designed the institution of family to work in this way. Um, children generally will embrace the faith of their Christian parents. Generally. This is a gift gift. Of God, two parents who faithfully pray for their children, faithfully disciple their children, God is going to send his Holy Spirit to bless that family and regenerate the children. So what's my point? The point is, in order to win the next generation to Christ, we're going to have to be willing to go to the heads of the household. And through our courageous witness, God wins fathers scripture never indicates that you win a household through the children God didn't ask us to spread the gospel in that way in fact never in scripture does it indicate that it's the child's responsibility to go take the faith to the adults in the household scripture says it's our responsibility to take the gospel to those adults in that household. That's your and my responsibility. There's become in America a notion that if we somehow give children through these programs enough games and enough fun and the neighborhood kids come in and we we share with them some truths of the gospel, uh, that it will rub off on them and they'll eventually return home. And then over time, almost like a time bomb, pow! Pow! The gospel is going to go off and everyone in the household is going to believe. Presto. The parents are going to become Christian through the witness of the children. And the parents are going to be so thankful to the church that their children came to faith in this through this youth ministry that they're going to come to the church and our growth will explode if we just have better youth ministry. But it doesn't happen. After years of outreach here with Awana and VBS and And all kinds of very good programs, which we do and we will continue to do. We have a handful of children that have come to faith. Parents rarely come on Sunday. When we reach out just in general to our community, once in a while, um, there's an anomaly. We'll invite parents to a VPS Sunday. Last year, I think we had 269 parents that came, Nathan. Uh, The first Sunday after VBS was over... And there's a great time, great song, full house. And a week later, it's over. And generally, not exclusively, but generally, you don't see them again until the next big event. Why? Because you don't win the household, generally, through the children. There's always an exception. There's always a faithful, believing dad, whose child rebels. These types of things always happen. There's always an exception to every rule. But in general, the pattern that we're given is that you go win the culture to Christ through the parents. The unfortunate part of ministry when the parents aren't involved is that children will, move, will return home. They'll have learned verses, and they'll have learned things about Jesus, and it's never reaffirmed by the parents. The parents have no interest in it, so the children kind of return home and they're sure that they're Christian because they've memorized all the right answers. Then when they graduate from high school, they encounter a new reality. It's called college. What happens then? Statistically, 75% of them defect from their beliefs that they were taught. Now, I personally don't believe that the majority of these 75%, some will return again later, they say 6% overall. In general, a lot of kids have memorized a lot of verses, memorized a lot of facts. A lot of them have not been born again. You can't lose your salvation. These 75% aren't just simply losing their salvation. Something did not get reaffirmed in the home by their parents. And 75% defect. So Scripture tells us this. Experience, from what we've talked with Pastor Weiler, Nathan, and others, experience tells us this. And I asked Pastor Weiler uh, why he thinks that, you know, so often that we do ministry in this way and expand ministry in this way and do more and more children's outreach and do more mailings to the community. And his response to me, which I was expecting uh, when we talk about this, uh, he says, because it's easy to bait them in. Some candy, some good games, low-hanging fruit, I think, that he... Said once, you can bring them in. If they ask you any hard questions, you're bigger than they are, so you just don't have to worry about getting back to them with an answer. Um, it's easy with games to draw large numbers, so it really looks impressive. They're easier to control, but uh, Nathan and Gerald and myself and, and pretty much every other Christian leader has been out there know it's extremely difficult uh, to grow a church through sending the children home to their parents. Very, very difficult. So you're asking the question probably, so do we, just abandon children's ministry. No. Absolutely not. Matthew 19, verse 14, uh, says, Jesus was saying to the disciples, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. Suffer not the little children, in the King James, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So we don't hinder them from hearing the gospel, we facilitate them hearing the gospel, and we do a very good job of that here, and we are going to see results from that. We want to provide those opportunities for children to come and hear the word, it's some of the most exciting times in our church. We'll continue to do that. But Jesus in the Bible never implies that we can anticipate that we'll build His church on youth activities. We have to reach adults. I've heard people dispute this. They say, look around at all the successful churches. They have great youth programs. Yes. A children that is obedient to the gospel and goes out and wins their neighbors to Christ are going to have robust youth programs. It's symptomatic of a healthy evangelical church. The church that Rita and I went to in Texas, we had over 800 children in Sunday school on Sundays. That doesn't include teens. That's just children. But they didn't come because of the youth programs. The church goes out and evangelizes, talks to people about Jesus Christ. People are one to the faith. People are challenged to re-embrace a faith that they might already have and come to church. And what happens when the parents who love Jesus Christ or have come to know one about Jesus Christ come to church? They bring their children, whether they like it or not. So that church has very successful, very robust children's programs, but that's not how it grew. Um, high quality children's ministries flourish because parents bring their children to church. great example of that would be Jerry and Jenny Beasley. Love the Lord Jesus Christ. Serve in lots of capacities. Are a joy to be around. And can anybody tell me what they have? Four wonderful kids. And they bring them repeatedly. They bring them. They're involved. They're telling them about Christ. They're involved in their lives. And there's some very encouraging statistics I'm going to wrap up with here for parents like y'all. And dads are, are this gateway to the household, to the children. So what about the moms? We have a culture that's torn by divorce, and there are all kinds of, of single Household, single-parent households and unwed mothers, is there any hope in those situations? Yes, absolutely. The mothers are a gateway also. In fact, in the Hebrew culture, up until the age of 13, the mother was the primary spiritual influence at home while dad was out digging a ditch. She had a very strong influence until the bar mitzvah, when in that culture... Uh, the boy officially became a man. So moms make a a spiritual impact as well. Do you remember Lydia in Acts chapter 16? It says in in verse 13 of that chapter concerning Paul and Luke and Timothy who had gone out on mission, it says, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia... From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, again she hadn't heard of Christ, but she was worshiping the Jewish God, she was listening. And the Lord opened her to respond, her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Then it tells us what that she and her whole household were baptized. She became the gateway where it appears, gives the appearance, anyhow, that there was no man involved, no living husband. And then concerning Timothy, does anybody remember how he has reached? Timothy's dad was an unconverted Greek. But his mom and grandpa grandma, mom and grandma were discipling him. And in Second Timothy uh, chapter three, Paul tells Timothy, You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. But who did Timothy learn those scriptures from? First, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 tells us that. It says, Paul's writing, he says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it is in you as well. With an absent father, spiritually absent father, God used the mother and the grandmother to sow a sincere faith into young Timothy. Read a sister in Brazil. We've talked with you folks a number of times about her in prayer meetings and such, and how she lived quite a rebellious life. Her name's Marcia. And over years and years, she struggled with a lot of different habits, and she ended up getting pregnant and had two children. They are autistic boys, Pedro and Luis. And for years, the boys saw her struggle with all of these things. Tragically, there was no father in the home. And after a constant witness in the, in the grace of God, Marcia became a Christian. She became a Christian, and what happened when she became a Christian? Her life changed. She quit doing the things that she was doing before. She put her faith in Christ. Here she is in her mid thirties, late thirties, coming to Christ, and these two boys, Pedro and Louise, see that happen. What do you think of that? What do you think they think about that? I can tell you what they think about that. Now, when they're walking down the street with their mom, because that's typically how you get around in Brazil, they don't have a car. They're carrying their Bibles, and when people stop and say, "Oh, what a," Cute couple twins they are, 11 years old, 10 or 11 years old now. Oh, what cute kids. They're holding their Bibles. And they tell them, Jesus saved my mom. Mom's changed because of Jesus. These boys can't get enough Jesus. They've seen the the household transformed by the gospel and it's become a witness to them through their wonderful mother, Marcia, who's our sister in Christ now. The fact remains... The head of household is a spiritual gateway to the next generation. Fathers and mothers are not going to be able to just hand that off to the church. They can't just stop on a want on Friday night and drop them off at the curb and never get involved and never teach the children anything and, and never talk to them about Jesus and pass that off for the church to do. It is the parents or legal guardian's responsibility, the head of the household. If there's a primary job of the associate pastor, some would call him youth pastors. I refer to Gerald. He does so much. He's associate pastor. He's not directly only youth. Um, If there's a job that he and I have, it has helped the parents become better disciplers of their children. Not to take the place of their parents to disciple their children, but to help encourage them and teach them to teach the scriptures to their children. Gerald and I and Nathan and you cannot replace the spiritual influence of the parent. So what do we do? What do we do? God has instructed us in Scripture to go and tell. He's told us to go and tell adults. That takes a lot of courage. And that takes a lot of time. And some training would help. That's why... We're beginning E.T., evangelism training. That's going to begin on March 8th. You can see it in your bulletin there. We're going to help you to overcome the fears, the reservations you have of approaching a stranger with the gospel. Uh, In this class, we're going to be providing you evangelistic tools, practical opportunities to go out and talk to heads of households. You'll be for six weeks beginning... Uh, at 4 p.m. on Sundays. The reason that we're doing it on 4 p.m., moving it, uh, the evening fellowship forward a little bit is because by 6, a lot of the families are retreating back into their homes for dinner, so we're going to start a little earlier. And uh, we're going to go hit our streets and our parks and our neighborhoods, and we're going to talk to people about the gospel. So this is what it will look like. When we we come together, there'll be about, oh, there'll be a song and a prayer, and then there'll be about 30 to 40 minutes of practical teaching. Practical tools, simple tools that everybody can remember. And then we're going to pray and break off, and we're going to identify parks, possibly tradition even, tradition square where people are outside walking around in the wonderful weather we have at that time of year. It can be local parks, it can be strip malls, wherever there are people that are casually about. And we're going to spend 30 to 40 minutes just walking up to people politely and talking to them about Jesus. Um, the key word here is politely. We're not going to be combative or antagonistic. In Colossians, Paul said concerning witnessing, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to respond to each person. And then Peter said a similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We don't go out guns blazing, Yahoo cowboy. Um, We don't try to offend people, belittle them, pick fights with them. Uh, We win people to God's truth, to his word, through gentleness and reverence. So after this 30 to 40 minutes of of going out, uh, we'll return to the church for just a few minutes to give a testimony of what we've seen God do. Uh, We'll go out in teams of two by two. We're going to try and match up. Someone like myself will be matched up with someone who is not comfortable with approaching strangers. Rita will be matched up with someone who's not comfortable with being strangers. Gerald says he will do it. He is comfortable walking up to people. He'll overcome his fear. Right, Gerald? Nathan, if you are the type that can do that with some tools or just are comfortable enough to walk up to strangers politely and talk about Christ or invite them to church and ask, do you know who Christ is? Are you a Christian? And, and want to help bridge that. If you're that type of person, we need you. And we'll pair you up with someone who just isn't very comfortable with that. And we'll go together and they'll see how that's bridged. We'll dress casually. We'll dress, uh, dress in a way that we don't get confused with any other group that goes around. Shorts and flip-flops will be good for this and they'll see that people really don't bite your head off. People really do not explode on you, generally. People are actually quite receptive if you approach them in the right way to talking about Jesus Christ. Uh, Rita and I did this uh, repeatedly at our previous church. We were involved with evangelism training, and uh, we would teach classes, go out, and uh, sometimes we'd even go in groups of three, because we'd find out that the ratios are that two people... Uh, wouldn't want to go as compared to everyone that would be willing to approach a stranger. But it, it's better to go one, one-to-one, groups of two. And uh, we saw numbers of people come to Christ through this. A whole lot of people come to church through doing this. And it's certainly not that her and I or Gerald or anyone has a formula. Everyone here will develop their own personality and how they approach strangers. Everyone will have to come over their, overcome their fear in a different way with just very simple techniques. You'll find from time to time, if you paired up with Rita or myself, that we will crash and burn. We'll say some things that are uh, stuttered. Uh, we'll stumble over ourselves, just like everybody does. And uh, But remember, God uses those who are not attractive and who are not eloquent in speech to bring people to the gospel. Oh. So if we're a faithful church... Um, and outre- in outreach, and, and over the coming months, then what would you expect to see if we're faithful with going out with the gospel? We'd expect to see that we'll see adults come to faith, and as adults come to faith and they attend our church, they will bring their children. We're going to have flourishing children's ministries. Uh, it's going to take time. It doesn't happen overnight, but uh, it is a very exciting thing to have families households coming in to, hear, to uh, know the know the Lord and to know Christ. That brings us to uh, a final statistic then we'll wrap up. Do you remember what uh, percentage I told you of people who do not come to faith by the time they're 18? 6% will come to faith. If you do not reach them before 18, only 6%, barring a revival of some kind that our nation has seen, that can happen, but in general, 6% over time, or what the statistics would indicate, um, I have another article here that is from a website called GotQuestions.org. Great resource to go to if you have questions about the Bible or questions about other religions. GotQuestions.org. I've been going for about 12 years now, I think 12 or 15 years, and they, uh, from an evangelical standpoint, will answer a lot of questions um, that you have. They'll they'll tell you what Jehovah Witnesses believe. They'll tell you. A whole lot of pretty much anything you ask. And this is what they found in a study. I believe this was from Fuller Seminary, at least one of their sources. And they say there's no question that a key factor in whether young people remain resolute in their Christian faith or walk away from it is the influence of their parents. It's as the proverb says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. They quote that same proverb. And they say, one particular study found that when both parents were faithful and active in church, both parents are faithful and active, 93% of their children remain faithful through their life. 93% that's God answering the prayers of parents who are on their knees asking God to give faith to the children. It's not a cultural phenomenon. It is God answering prayers. And when just one parent was faithful, this is one of the two, 73% of their children remained faithful over the years. 73%. It says when neither parent was particularly faithful, but still came to church, were somewhat faithful, 53% of their children stayed faithful. Faithful. It says in those instances where both parents were not active at all, were not plugged in at all and only attending church now and then, what do you suppose that percentage of those under eighteen dropped to? Six percent. Through these I know statistics are only statistics. They don't apply to every circumstance and every situation, but they give a broad overview. If the parents are not involved, if they're just dropping their kids off on Sunday and and leaving, if they are not plugged in at all, they have the same same percentage of them that would come to faith before 18 as after 18. Without the parents, it really doesn't matter. 6%. We're going to go after that 6%. Should also encourage us in a lot of other ways... If 6% in general is, is what we could typically see barring a revival of some kind, God working miraculously, is there's lots of other ministries out there as well. We shouldn't in any way not go to convalescent centers. If, if God set that on your heart that you want to go witness to people who are shut-ins or in homes, you got about the same. 6%. But if we can go to families and bring their parents in and encourage them together to grow in faith, if God will bless us in that way, up to 93%. That's a wonderful promise from God. It mimics what we see in Scripture. Well, um, if we love children, I know we all do, uh, the most compassionate thing we can do for them, the best thing we can do for them is to go talk to their parents about Jesus Christ. That is the way to win a household. We pray with me? Lord, we know you are marvelous and, and you can do all things and you can throw all the percentages out the window, Lord. Every time we share the gospel, regardless of the age, you can open a heart of that individual. You can do divine open heart surgery, Lord, and help them to receive the truth that we're sharing with them, Lord. We know you're building your church. We know that you are wanting to see your wonderful son, Jesus, glorified for what he's done, for him dying for us, Lord. And we want to take that message forth. Lord, we're especially concerned about the young people who are going into a world that are, that's, that's about to tear them apart. Lord, it's tearing everyone here apart. Lord, people are in agony. There are people at home that don't know you. their are parents. There are retired people that are desperate to hear about the gospel. Lord, I pray that as as we would continue to go to our community, as we continue to reach people of all ages, that you'd open hearts for those to believe. That you'd do a miraculous work, Lord God. And through that, through those grandparents and mothers and fathers and those, Lord, that you would bring a whole lot of young people to faith too. Lord, help us, strengthen us. We look forward to the next season here with Youth Ministry. Uh, wanna wraps up. We're going to be gearing up for Vacation Bible School, which is, is always a blast. Lord, uh, help us as we prepare to serve you, as we prepare for evangelism training, and Lord, as we prepare to step out in courage to reach those that are lost. Thank you, Lord, for our time today together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.